This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Lifestone, and the author is Gary Kaschek, and Gary joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Gary. Hi, Steve. How are you? Well, this book is a very interesting because we go from the Civil War era to the modern day. So tell us a little bit in general about the book, and we'll get into more details, obviously, as we talk about all the characters and uh, the different circumstances that they have to go through. But why did you write the book? I had just finished um, my second novel a few months earlier, uh, The Halt to China, and was just wanting to write a third one. It was, I had had enough rest and ready to go. Uh, the idea came to me one day as I was traveling the same road that I travel every day. There was a college on one side of the road and a cemetery on the other side of the road, and without even thinking of uh, what my next st- story would be, the idea just came to me from those two things on the road. So somehow they're tied together through all of this uh, different time periods. Yeah, the, um, the there's two separate stories, and they alternate uh, every other chapter. The current day is um, uh, the college, where a professor has given his journalism students a, an assignment to research the history of a very ordinary person uh, that lived more than 100 years ago and lived at least 50 years, and of course, the cemetery being the other part of the story is the older part of the story. The two college students who collaborate on the story discover this one tombstone that um, is not just an ordinary person as they discover what they find out about her. So it opens up back uh, during the Civil War, back on the plantation, and it's focused on a black a slave named Hope. That's right. Hope is the main character. She's a very young slave at the time uh, Sherman is uh, just coming through Georgia. Uh, She's uh, 17, but even at that young age, uh, she's established herself as uh, the true leader of her people. Uh, They look up to her for advice and, um, you know, anything that um, she suggest is uh, generally the way the, the, all the slaves in that one plantation uh, go, go by. So she's a very strong person um, due to some circumstances um, when she was even younger than 17. And she was, what, only 12, 13 when she was first uh, kidnapped? Yeah, 13 when she was brought over on the, uh, the last of the slave ships, uh, the Cloth Isle. Uh, she was sold off in uh, Savannah. And... Um, she had no family, um, as uh, you, you find out very quickly in Chapter 1, uh, what has happened to her brother and sister back in Africa and her parents on the ship uh, as they come to America. And you're very detailed in, in describing, the, obviously, the way those slave ships, boy, they were just packed in like cattle, weren't they? Oh, yeah, and, uh, you know, that that's come from... Movies I've seen over the years, other books I've read, uh, a lot of, uh, I did do a lot of digging and researching, and uh, yeah, uh, anybody who's got a sense of uh, the slave trade knows what they had to endure. 
and I tried to be as uh, graphic and as um, descriptive as I could in that uh, opening chapter. That must have been one of the challenges, wasn't it, to really get it uh, so uh, historically right? Yeah, but that was also part of the fun. It was, um, you know, here here I have uh, created fictitious characters, but I really wanted uh, the sense of history to be as accurate as could be, and and that's even into the uh, the weather of the times. Um, I, I actually did research uh, the weather uh, to, on certain times of her travels, and and it make sure that was as historically accurate as can be. And um, yeah. Uh, Interesting, as you go and research all these things, uh, you find out even more uh, about the times, and it gives you an amazing uh, feel for these people as they they walked 1,000 miles to freedom, and some of them, most of them, didn't even make it. So here is a moment in time where Hope, Hope, this uh, slave who's a leader among her people, she recognizes an opportunity, doesn't she? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, the plantation owner and his family, uh, they need to vacate the, uh, the plantation as uh, uh, the battle comes closer and closer to, the, uh, to, to where they live. So, I mean, they can hear the cannons. In fact, some of the, the cannonballs are starting to land right on the plantation. Oh, yeah. They're, it's, it's that close. They can, uh, they can hear the ground shaking. They can smell the, uh, the, the fire, uh, the cannonballs. They can... Uh, all, uh, they can hear everything happening, so they, they need to vacate. So the, they basically leave the slaves behind and just uh, hightail out of there without them. Without them, so the slaves are left to uh, fend for themselves, and uh, truly, they don't know what to do. Well, that's uh, I'm sure is realistic because they've been taken care of from morning till night, even though they've been treated in the most uh, terrible way. Well, that's just it. They. They they were frozen in fear because of what they had seen happen to other slaves uh, who had um, you know tried to run away or hadn't listened. So they they really uh, had been programmed to, um, to to not react to their peril. They they really had had no clue what to do. So uh, along comes Hope, and she's the one that uh, decides that uh, they need to follow her, and um, uh, and that's pretty much how it starts out. And you give her a characteristic right from the start. This is a very religious woman. Yeah, she's um, she's learned from the plantation owner's daughter in uh, clandestine meetings uh, uh, how to read, how to write. Uh, part of her uh, persona is that she's just uh, got this aura about her. She's very charismatic, uh, even uh, with the, the white people that she meets along the way that despise the uh, the slaves that she she's able to always impress people. She has also learned uh, scripture Bible from uh, this uh, young girl and uh, has taken to Christianity and um, uh, has kind of combined it with her own beliefs from Africa and uh, that's what keeps her going and uh, is part really part of. Uh, Big part of the book is, is having faith in something and, and never never letting go of that, uh, despite the circumstances and the odds against you. So never giving up. Oh no, never giving up. Uh, never, never blaming. Never uh, shunning your beliefs. Uh, you know, an incredibly strong woman that um, that uh, you know is able to show that in every circumstance. Uh, she has 
one circumstance after another that just uh, never seemed to go right for her. But she looks at, at each one of them as if it's a test. And then in the very next chapter, you rocket us into time, to the modern times, uh, to upstate New York, where sounds like Mora is the same type of woman. Yeah, uh, a young um, journalism uh, major, um, uh, not a, just a very simple girl. Um, she loves her writing. She loves reading. She's not into the party atmosphere of college. She just wants to uh, be in this uh, one class in particular, Prof- Professor Norwich. She's the one who gives the assignment. And uh, the assignment is what I had said earlier, to uh, visit a cemetery, find a tombstone that's at least 100 years old. Uh, the person had to be at least 50 years old, and they can't be a famous person or a relative. And uh, they have to research their, their life history. Um, so uh, it's, it's obvious what's about to happen, that uh, the tombstone that she chooses is Hope's, a very simple tombstone. And Mora calls it the perfect assignment. She calls it the perfect assignment because Professor Norwich has given a different assignment uh, every year of his 50 years. These are uh, summer assignments for the journalism majors, and uh, there's description of some of his other um, assignments he's given out in, in prior years, and Mora has charted them and followed them and uh, just couldn't wait until the time she became uh, you know, enrolled in one of his classes and had the assignment, and she absolutely feels that it is the perfect assignment. By the way, uh, as far as realism goes, my wife and I actually did go into a few cemeteries uh, and walked around and really tried to find out how difficult it really was to find a cemetery, uh, a tombstone that was 100 years old with someone who lived at least 50 years. And uh, so those images uh, that I had come across in the cemetery were written um, in this book. So you set it up. Here we have a scene from 1864 and a scene from modern times. Now the question is, how does Mora get to know Hope, and what's the, what's this uh, what's this storyline all about? What where, where are you taking me? Yeah. Well, it is a there's a lot of intrigue as you go as Mora uh, attempts to discover more of this person, she just has one roadblock after the other. It is um, very, very difficult for her to get even uh, a a little bit of information, even from the cemetery uh, themselves. There's just nothing um, until she catches a break um, by meeting a uh, a local historian who's uh, signing his books out out in front of a bookstore. And... um, that uh, collaboration helps her become a little bit more armed with uh, ammunition as he is very interested in, in her topic. And uh, soon enough, they, uh, he, she starts to lean on him for information, and um, it just becomes deeper and deeper as they, as they delve for information on this person. And that's Torrance? No, Torrance is the, uh, the, uh, is the college student that... Um, oh, helps her. He, he They're working also, together. Yeah, but they, they don't work together at first. He is in her class, and uh, she despises him. He's a, a snooty, rich, good-looking boy from uh, Cape Cod who's uh, had it made his whole life. And um, 
He's been very offensive to people and uh, puts people down, especially in the service field. So uh, at first, uh, he he has chosen uh, his own character for this assignment. And uh, but as they move on to the story, they discover that their two, the people that they had chosen, had very much in common. So they do end up uh, collaborating together, even if uh, at a distance uh, at first. So throughout the story, we learn more and more about the adventures of Hope, then. Oh, yeah, and uh, her adventures are very descriptive as she moves from Georgia, and her ultimate goal is to make it to uh, Canada, uh, because the uh, the escaped slaves back then did not need their freedom papers uh, if they made it to Canada, or uh, many of them had gone to uh, the islands. Um, that was uh, so. That was her goal, as she discovered that uh, even though uh, Lincoln had signed the Emancipation Proclamation, that uh, it truly didn't mean that they were free because they didn't have their papers. So that's her goal. She does endure all kinds of problems, as you can imagine a slave on the run would back then. Uh, eventually, she uh, she does make it and um, she reestablishes herself. But uh, then something goes terribly wrong for her and. Uh, the story just continues to grow and grow. Now, did she bring uh, others with her? Yeah, she started off with a, a, a large group of uh, slaves, and um, uh, at one point they, uh, they're confronted by several, uh, a unit of the, uh, the Union Army. A good number of the slaves decide to uh, go with the Army um, instead of uh, going on their own. And so her... Her group is reduced to just a few people, and um, I'd be giving uh, too much away if I uh, sure. went any further from that as far as uh, how many people are left when she ultimately does make it uh, you know, north. Now, is there romance in, in your fictional uh, historical novel? Of course. <laughs> of course. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's, uh, there is romance. Um, you know, the, the Mora uh, gets uh, into a, a romantic uh relationship with someone, and um, uh, Hope has um, a very short um, romantic fling uh, later in the book. So, yes, there is uh, definitely the, uh, the romantic appeal for, for those readers who like that. I guess my, my uh, obviously, don't know the ending, and we, we, you, you know, we don't want you to give it away, but at the same time, it seems like Mora is going to learn something from Hope. Is that what this this is? Uh, what Mora is learning about life through Hope? Well, Mora is uh, one of those people who um, she she takes the the information she's gathered along the way as um, little messages, um, you know, without without being. Uh, without sounding like it's a, a, a ghostly tale or anything like that, but she, she feels the presence of, uh, of the character Hope, and that helps her to not give up because, um, as I stated earlier, it's so difficult for her to find information. Uh, so, oh, yeah, this uh, uh, Hope is someone who um, is able to, um, to be a, a strong person even into death for uh, 100 years later. Any other concluding thoughts, Gary, about your book? Well, um, I know that um, the audience uh, can be a very vast audience here. It's, it's not if, if you don't like history, it, it won't matter. This is a this is a book that um, 
uh, is written. I wrote it for everybody. It's um, you know I, I'm trying to appeal to my uh, my African American audience with, with a sense of history, the uh, the, the romantic uh, side of things. Um, there's so many aspects of this book that um, I think um, readers would like. Uh, the one thing that um, I had always thought about this book, and it's Professor Norwich's ideal when he gives them the assignment, is that every life, even even one as this slave had, uh, was important. And um, as you are able to draw their life back together, you can really see how important that is. Um, you know, I, I you look at someone's obituary in the paper, and and you. You try to capsulize that person's life into a few paragraphs, and it's impossible. And uh, but the essence of a person is when you really research their life, and you come up with uh, what Mora ends up coming up with. Gary, how do we get your book? Well, you can go on uh, my. I have a website. It's uh, Gary D. Uh, I'm sorry, www. Gary D. Cashjack, and it's uh, K A S. CHAK.com. It's also available through Author House, uh, the, the publisher. You can certainly contact me if you'd uh, like a uh, written copy. So um, I hope that uh, the people out there are interested in it, in it and um, I appreciate it. Well, Gary, thanks for being on Author Talk. Thank you very much. That was author Gary Kaschek. He has his new book titled Lifestone. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. They flourish on a secluded farm 3,500 feet above sea level in Hinoteca, Nicaragua. These coffee beans grow in the shade of hardwood trees and banana plants, thriving in the rich organic soil. Shade-grown coffee grown at higher elevation has a better quality. There are two benefits. A slower growing cycle for the plants that allows time for the sugars in the bean to mature and the natural composting from the nitrogen-producing canopy. And now you can order this international gourmet coffee online at NicaraguasBestCoffee.com. Order 12-ounce and 16-ounce bags or save with a discounted price by ordering in large quantities. Three different coffee beans available, Arabica, Marigold Gaipe, and Green Oro. Prepare to enjoy the richness and the soothing flavor of some of the best-tasting coffee in the world. Order online at NicaraguasBestCoffee.com and enjoy Central American flavor, aroma, and richness of Nicaragua's Best Coffee. It's the chance for you to hear firsthand from authors on why they write their books in their own words. It's called iUniverse Radio, hosted by Steve Jorgensen every Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 Central on TogiNet Radio. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio, every Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 Central on TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge. Sending a heartfelt message is one of the best ways to touch someone, to touch the heart. But it's easy to forget birthdays, anniversaries, and other special occasions. Imagine how many lives you would touch if it was easy to send those heartfelt messages. Send Out Cards provides a way for you to send a personalized greeting card to a friend, loved one, or business associate in less than 60 seconds from the convenience of your computer. You can even add a gift or gift card. Send Out Cards is about helping people reach out to those around them. It's amazing what a simple message can do. 
Send Out Cards helps you act on your promptings to reach out and change lives. Show host Michelle Bateman has learned through personal experience what it means to be an eagle by always working to be your best self. Please join our conversation on Send Out Cards Radio with Michelle Bateman to learn what it means to be an eagle on toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, In the Blink of an Eye, and the author is Joyce Lovely, and Joyce joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Joyce. Hello. Well, this is kind of your story, what you... Well, what you've been through most of your life, but real focused on your son and daughter, uh, both uh, died at a very early age, and what you went through. That's right. So the motivation to write it, my goodness, that I mean, most people would say, how in the world could you write about it? Uh, what what prompted you to do this? I had uh, become unemployed, and. Uh, because of my age, I wasn't getting anywhere getting a new job, and I was just so totally bored. And I always wanted to write a book, so I sat down and started to write it. And it, how it came out was how it came out. I thought maybe if I had written the book uh, about how I lost the children and uh, what I went through before I lost them with the children, that it might be of comfort to someone that has had the same experience to show that there is hope beyond the despair, because at the time, you just don't feel there is. So you start out in your book, really, with you you're about your parents and you being born. That's right. Why did you do it that way? I don't know. i tell you the truth. Uh, it just came to me that way, and I, I just put it on paper. I really had no real reason for it. So when, how old were you when you had Constance, your daughter? I was 29. So you weren't uh, a, a young mother? No, I wasn't a teenage mother. And so you were 29 when she was born, and then Dana, he is what? Uh, 11? He was a year and a half older than Connie. I was 27 when I had him. Oh, okay. So he, he, all right. So he is the older one. Yeah. He just happened to be, uh, uh, he happened to die when he was younger. Yes, he died at 27. And Constance died at 39. Now let's let's talk about Dana first. Let's talk about him uh, growing up as a young boy. What what did you see in him? I saw a lot of potential, and I saw a very uh, good heart, and uh, he was very charitable, and I had high hopes for him because he had a very quick brain. So he was smart, he was intelligent, he was good-looking, but he did not have a father to help him along his, girl, his growing years, and that affected him. It affected him deeply because he had bonded with his father until he was two, and after that, his father was pretty much out of the picture. And that, even though he didn't remember his father, that bonding experience was in the back of his mind and it bothered him I think even more than my daughter growing up without a father. He got in with the wrong crowd, uh, he got into riding motorcycles, 
And I can't blame him for that because that runs in the, in my family. My uncle's had motorcycles, and it, it just comes right on down through the jeans. And he's joined a motor, tried to join a motorcycle club, and he uh, took to an older fella and looked to him like a father, and this man was not a father figure. He was the wrong man to attach himself to, and he just, it was just his downfall. Did he ever go to college, or did he ever do no, anything like that? he quit school when he was in eighth grade, and I couldn't get him back in school. No matter what I did, I called and spoke with the school authorities. I spoke with the truant officer. And back then, he said, there's nothing we can do, Mrs. Lovely. We take them to court, and the judge just laughs at us. Now I think they're much more strict about children uh, dropping out of school at such an early age. But back then, my hands were tied. And he, he just started at a, at a young age smoking pot, and he went from one to the one drug to another. Now, did his father at all ever visit him after uh, his father left? Yes, he did. Ten months after I had separated from him, he had gone to Florida to work, and he called and said that he would like to come up and see the children. And I said, fine. And he said what day and time he'd be there. So I scooted down to the district court. It was in the wintertime trying to get uh, a warrant to get him arrested for non-support, but uh, my divorce hadn't gone through, and back then the laws didn't allow them to do anything to the father for non-support. So my efforts were in vain. So he did come to see the children for a couple of hours, and my son didn't remember him, and that threw him for a loop. How old was he then? He was only two. And I said, look, you've been gone 10 months. He doesn't know who you are. So he left, and that was that. But he did see them over the years from time to time, every few years. Just from time to time. So there was no kind of, there was no relationship, really. Not really. Not really. I wanted them to know that they had a father. And regardless of what he was or what he did, he was their father. And they should respect that. At least they were brought up with that. They formed their own opinions about their father as they got older. So Dana joins this motorcycle club, uh, kind of takes a surrogate father that's not really a, a good example to him at all. Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. And gets involved with drugs, and it's, you know, what what kind of a time period are we talking about here? That he was, what, Did he stay at home at all, or was he yeah, always he on the home. go? Or? he was home back and forth. Uh, he, he was... Uh, into marijuana first. And I used to tell him, Dana, you're going to, you know, that's going to lead to bigger and better drugs because sooner or later the high isn't going to affect you. He said, Ma, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, I hate to say this, but I was right. And that's something I would not ever have wanted to be right about. And ultimately, one thing he said to me was, Ma, don't worry, I'll never do heroin because you can't control it. Well, he got hooked on heroin. He was drinking at a party, and someone said, here, try this. And he could not control it. And that was his downfall. Well, that's what people always believe, that they're they're stronger than the drug, which obviously uh, it's very uh, sad tale that the drugs are usually stronger than a person's will. Well, 
I think that I know addiction is genetic. And uh, my father was an alcoholic for years. And my husband became an alcoholic after I left him. And uh, the gene was just passed on. And this is what I tried to convey to him. They don't understand that that addiction is a disease that just, once it gets hold of you, it's very difficult to break. Was he uh, an angry young man because, you know, this deep pain inside of him about not having a father? Uh, He wasn't angry all the time. He used to blame everyone for everything that happened to him. And I said, Dana, you have your father's attitude. You can't blame other people for what happens to you, especially if you bring it on yourself. As he got older, he realized uh, what he had done was foolish, but then it was too late. His body had been ravaged. And so I know this is hard to talk about, but what was the final, what was the final uh, event or experience that took his life? As I said, he got involved with this <laughs> motorcycle chieftain or whoever he was, whatever he was. And he got into a fracas with him. And uh, Dana got picked up and arrested. And then one thing went to another. He was put in jail and got bailed out. And it was a continuation of an ongoing thing. And he wanted to get out of the state because he had contracted HIV from sharing needles. And he said, Ma, I don't want to die of AIDS, and I don't want to die in jail. He said, get me in a rehab out of state. So his father had told me about one in Maine, where his father was from. And I said, well, call your father and get the name of the hospital he was he referred you to before. So he did, and we called, and the hospital took his mass health, so I took him up there. And five days later, he was dead. They had pumped him so full of drugs that his heart couldn't take it. He just died. My goodness. Well, let's switch gears here, if we can, uh, and talk about Constance. Now, most families, when they go through this kind of a, a very tragic, tragic experience, the unexpected, something that always happens to someone else, uh, they don't have two in the family that it happens to, but you... Here's your daughter, and it's an entirely different story. Talk about Constance. Well, Constance uh, was extremely bright. Uh, She's beautiful. She had many boyfriends and so forth and so on. And she didn't get married till she was 33. She'd engaged several times, but it never came to pass. She got married and got pregnant with her daughter and had a cesarean. She was working as a customer service representative for a local insurance company, and she had a good job. And I used to babysit my granddaughter because I, I was working out of the house at the time. And she uh, was fine. Up, she lived with guilt over the fact that her brother died. She wasn't talking to him at the time. She, it just ate her up inside psychologically. And I think perhaps that's what caused a lot of her physical problems. So she couldn't work after she had Dana. Every once in a while, she'd get attacked, an attack of endometriosis, and she'd have an operation. She'd be fine for a while. Then it would start up again. 
And this went on for two, three years, however long. And we finally, she finally decided that she had found someone online that claimed to cure your endometriosis once and for all. It was a surgeon out in California, so I made arrangements to take her out there and have this done. And it was not the right thing to do, but she thought it would help her. It didn't. From that time on, she was never right. And then, I, as I say, I started to take her to the chiropractor, and he started to alleviating some of that pain down there because he, he used trigger point therapy. And it worked on the nerves. He said, oh, your nerves are inflamed from all the surgeries down there. She, she said, Ma, she said, he's, he's helping me. I can't believe it. She said, I feel so much better after he worked on me. I said, well, praise the Lord. At least we've got that, you know, going on the right path with that. And <laughs> a week later, she died from an aneurysm. Unexpected. I mean, no prior nope. problem. or I had no idea. And she even had one. She has had, she had more operations and more tests. The one thing they never did was a CAT scan of her head. They never knew she had it. I never knew she had it. So, I still don't know who she inherited it from. Hmm. My doctor said it was genetic, and you're born with them. So how have you been able to hold on? With my faith in God. Other than that, I don't think I'd be able to. I think I would have been <clears throat> put into a mental facility because that's what you feel like is happening to you at the time. You just simply feel you're off, and you're never going to be well again. Did you go through an angry period? I mean, were you ever angry with God? Some no, people certainly. some people get that way. Oh, certainly. But why God? Why? <laughs> you might as well ask the wind because you're never going to get an answer. There's a reason for everything, my mother always said. And the Bible says he won't put on you more than you can bear. I used to question him about that. Because you felt you couldn't bear it. Right. But here you are, and you've written a book about it. Yes, which is an amazing thing. That is amazing. Not that I wrote the book, but it's an amazing thing that I got through it to write the book. It was very therapeutic at the beginning, but then as I started to look at my notes about my son's hospitalization and what happened there and my daughter, it was just like it had happened afresh. And it was like a flood of grief just came over me. So you see, it's always with you. So how did you deal with that flood? Well, I just dealt with it and got on with it and, you know, finished the book. I just didn't go over that part too well. <laughs> I didn't edit it too well. <laughs> I can tell you that right now. So you're hoping that your book will help someone else? I'm hoping that it will. Everybody has a different take on a book when, you read, when they read it. Some people are totally inspired. Others just feel so sorry for my life. That is not the reason for this book. I don't want sympathy for my life. I want to help someone. Well, I'm sure you are and will continue by sharing your story, Joyce. It's a very, obviously, a very sad, but at the same time, like you say, everything happens for a reason, and I'm sure your faith is stronger today. 
Oh, yes, much, much more so. It has to be. Every day I have to get up and say, God, help me. Get me through this day. Well, Joyce, how do we get your book? Well, it's on Amazon, and it's also on Barnes & Noble website. And you can also get it through Author House, as you know. And Google has it. If you type in the title of my book and my name, it'll come up on Google. Flipkart.com has it. We Read uh, is another one. So there are, there are various Internet places for them to get. Uh, WordPress.com, type in my name, and it should come up. Well, it's a great accomplishment to publish a book. I know this one is a very difficult story, uh, a very difficult, obviously, uh, time that happened twice in your life and continues to, and you continue to carry it this day. And, and it sounds like you have uh, carry it very nobly. So I salute you for that. Well, thank you. I don't know how noble it is, but uh, you try. Every day you get up and you try to do better. Well, thanks again, Joyce, for being on Author Talk. Well, thank you for having me. That was Joyce Lovely. That's right. She is the author of her book, In the Blink of an Eye. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. So where were you in the 1970s? Well, this Saturday morning, we're going to flash back to the 70s as we count down the classic hits with the American Rock and Roll Countdown. You'll hear news and information and stories about the artist and what was going on during the specific week that we highlight. So be sure to join us at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time this Saturday on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. 
helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Ms. Sincerely Kind, Goes Out and About, Where Good Manners Matter. And the author is Barbara Hickey, and Barbara joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Barbara. Hello, Steve. Nice to be here. Well, we're going to talk about etiquette and the importance of children learning etiquette. But before we do that and you talk about your delightful instructional book, tell us about your background and your school and all the things you're doing that, I guess, prepared you to write the book. Well, I grew up in Niagara Falls, New York, a big family. I uh, went to Niagara University and uh, got a bachelor's in political science, went on to get a master's in public administration, and thought that I would uh, get into politics, which I have. But uh, in the meantime, I fell in love with a soldier, and of course the military requires that you, you know protocol and you know the right things to do. And of course I've always believed that you should be kind and respectful uh, at all times. So I read etiquette books as a, as a kid, and, uh, and I started then sort of mentoring people about the right thing to do. Uh, and uh, in the military, of course, uh, Jim's jobs required that he had a, young soldiers and their wives, and I just um, always was the one who answered their questions and everything and became the, the etiquette lady, and uh, the Army wanted me to... Uh, be part of Army family team building, and and uh, etiquette came up in that and protocol and the things to do overseas that would not make you the ugly American. And so um, we, we retired from the military, came to Atlanta, and my children convinced me that I should start the etiquette school because they have a, an in-home uh, music and uh, subject matter uh, business, and Parents were always saying, do you know anyone who teaches manners? And they'd say, yes, but she's in Korea. Yes, but she's in Maryland. Um, but uh, I did start the Etiquette School of Atlanta here. And, of course, Atlanta is a big city that likes good manners. We don't always use them in Atlanta, but we like we, <laughs> we like, like manners. We like them. Okay. Yes, that southern hospitality, southern well, right. charm. Uh, Southerners really, uh, a lot of them, especially my age, uh, had courses in in manners, or they had a favorite aunt who taught <laughs> them uh, good manners. So, so thus it began, and then my children said, "You know, Mom, we buy a lot of children's books for gifts or for our own, but you could really write these books because you're always teaching people," and so. Uh, I, the idea came to me of a character like Miss Sincerely Kind, someone who uh, is liked by all ages. There's something about her that draws you to her. She's she's kind and respectful of everyone, regardless of age, uh, nationality, religion. She's just one of those good people who who likes all people. So. Thus be, uh, became the character Miss Sincerely Kind, uh, and I like her very much. Well, she's a delightful woman. She really is. <laughs> <laughs> and she has some different travels in her life, and you 
kind of follow along and eavesdrop on her manners, right? I really do. Just to I see like what it. she's up to and how she uses all the manners that you have taught her so well. Yes, and I like that uh, I go back to the house and my dog dog manners is is there to talk to, and I, I tell manners the, the dog that, um, you know, we're so lucky that we know these wonderful people who know the right thing to do, and the right thing is just being kind and respectful. Uh, this, is, this is not being fussy about a certain fork or spoon. It's just, it's just doing things that, that make other people comfortable around you and want to be with you because you know how to put them at ease. So, no, it sounds like it's just following the golden rule. It is. In fact, if you study the histories of um, civilizations, you will see that um, they all started with, uh, they didn't call it the golden rule, of course. They said, if I don't steal your crops, maybe you won't steal my crops. If I don't encroach on your land, maybe you won't encroach on my land. So it really comes down to do other, unto others as you would have them do unto you, which is pretty easy to follow if you think about it. The word etiquette. Tell us about the word etiquette. <laughs> kind of interesting. Well, that is such a great story. The uh, gardener for Louis the Fourteenth uh, was it Louis the Fourteenth or Louis the Sixteenth? I'm drawing a blank, but uh, Louis the Sixteenth maybe he. Uh, he loved his gardens, the gardens of Versailles. And uh, his gardener was so frustrated because he was so proud of his handiwork. And one day he came to the um, uh, king and he said, none of the dukes and duchesses will stay off of my ground. You know, they, they trample the flowers and the bushes and they, they walk over them and what do I do? And he said, put up etiquette signs. Etiquette are signs. And they meant keep off the grass. And that's <laughs> how that has evolved. So, Well, you might know that the French would have something to do with it. Right? <laughs> yes. Etiquette. They, uh, it sounds like a French word, really. I it mean, really it, does. It, yeah, exactly. So, so, it was uh, Louis XIV. It was. Yes, it was Louis XIV, not the so there so, is a visual in our minds that we'll never forget. Yes, hopefully. Keep off the grass. Exactly. That just means, you know, behave yourself. That's exactly right. And, and uh, uh, observe the wishes of others. Very good. Well, let's talk about Ms. Sincerely Kind. Let's talk about her first journey in the book. Where does she go first and, and you follow along? Well, the first one is she goes to Strawberry Fields the mall. And uh, I guess I had to throw that in for the Beatles. It isn't Strawberry Fields forever. It's just yes. Strawberry Fields Mall, right? Yes. Okay. Well, she had several things that she needed to do. And as she got there, she saw some people coming towards her, some friends, and um, they had their grandchildren with them. And she was so impressed when uh, she was introduced to the children because they they smiled at her and they shook her hand 
They made eye contact. They said their names. And these are the ingredients of making a good first impression, aren't they? If someone smiles at you, you usually, you know, it brings a smile on your face because they seem like they want to meet you. They want to talk to you. So she goes away uh, into the mall after she says goodbye to them thinking, my goodness, aren't they wonderful young people? And and what a great impression they made on her because they followed these things we call ingredients of a first meeting. You know, you if you're seated, stand up when someone comes towards you and, and wants to talk to you. Stand up. Uh, smile. Uh, make eye contact. Say your name clearly. And and if you um, if you smile, I think that just opens a whole world for you. I find a lot of CEOs will tell me that uh, you know a lot of their success is they have an easy smile. People gravitate to them because they uh, they smile. And uh, in fact. Who is the big? Who is the big financier? Charles Schwab says he's, he attributes his success to his smile. It uh, sort of has people um, put at ease when you smile. And my oldest son is a salesman, and and I know that's why he's so successful because he's such a laid back, friendly guy, and he always is smiling. I, I, I just. Uh, I think that's just an easy thing to do, isn't it? Well, and there's only, there's, uh, first impressions only happen once. That's what uh, Richard Bowles does who wrote uh, What Color Is Your Parachute? Uh, he, in that book, of course, helps people get in touch with their skills and what they, what they don't even know about themselves. They don't even know that they have skills that they really do. And he says, but remember, you only have one chance to make a good first impression that's for sure and 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 if you've ever made a bad first impression steve you have to backpedal to get people to think that you're not that person who seemed a little grumpy that day maybe disengaged (laughs) you know or if you just kind of said something that afterwards you went why did i say that That didn't. That isn't me. That, Why did I no, say that? No, who was that person? <laughs> yeah. Yes. And that's yes. what the person probably is remembering about you. you that's know? right. That's right. So okay. So you can you can backpedal and you can when you meet them again make up for that. Hopefully. Well, let's see. After going to Strawberry Fields Mall, where everybody wants to go. Yeah. <laughs> because who knows? Maybe you'll see Paul or John there. Well. Yeah. How about that? How about that? Uh, where else does she go? What's her What's her next journey? Uh, she then she you know of course she travels to uh, you know get her gifts and everything. She's setting up the rest of the day, but she's invited to a birthday party now. Children's birthday parties are a little different today than they used to be. Um, we used to say to our children. Uh, you, you must thank them for every gift. I guess children didn't get as many gifts years ago because I don't remember my children ever saying, oh, I already have this, <laughs> or oh, I didn't want this. When I started teaching here in Atlanta and the, I talked to the kids about party manners, I, I asked them, well, what is a birthday party like for you and what are the things that you like about it, and what are some of the things that you don't like? Well, I was hearing that kids 
actually would open a gift and say, oh, I don't like this, and throw it on the floor. I was <laughs> so surprised. A parent's worst nightmare. Yes, it was. And, and apparently that, that can be pretty common. Well, the uh, children that are having this uh, birthday party, Christian and TJ, they're the, uh, the, the birthday girl is Christian. TJ is her brother, and he helps her uh, be a host. And the parents are there, uh, and, and smartly so, are letting them be the host and hostess. Because even at your birthday party, you're not really supposed to be the guest of honor at your birthday party. You are supposed to, in your own home, greet them at the door. You're supposed to make sure that they're engaged in conversation or part of the, the games. Make sure they get refreshment. You are supposed to take care of your guests. They have gone out of their way to choose a, uh, a gift for you, to take the time to come to your party, children or adults. I mean, you, you are the hostess or the host of your party. And, uh, and these children do. They do a wonderful job. And so then I reiterate that at the end of the um, uh, you know, chapter, I, I reiterate what they did right. And so that'll be good for parents to try to reinforce that before the party begins. And the book is filled with colorful illustrations. Oh, they're amazing. They're exactly how I described them. And because I had characters in my head. Yes, just, just wonderful. So. Well, in the, in the last journey in this book, Sounds like this is going to be a series to me. I am so hoping for that. <laughs> there are so many different things. I want them to be able to, you know, they go to the, Miss Sincerely Kind goes to the movies, and she'll observe uh, children at the movies. She'll take children to the movies. She'll go to the zoo. She'll go to, to uh, a symphony, uh, a play. Whatever, wherever good manners have to take place, especially when there's public around, you know. Uh, right. Uh, parents loved the courses that I taught that went into various behaviors, the, the differences that uh, from acting at home to acting in public. Yeah. Well, we've got a couple of minutes left to talk about uh, Ms. Sincerely Kind Goes Out to Dinner. Yes, you know, that is a thing that the parents uh, feel strongly about. They feel their children do not have good table manners. Uh, what, it has, what happens is when children are, are little and you have to feed them, you look forward to the first time they can feed themselves with utensils. And so we just let them do it any way they want to. Well, holding a fork becomes uh, a habit. Everything becomes a habit. I learned at NASA when I was there that it takes 21 days to break a habit. That's 21 consecutive days. So... Imagine these children at four have been holding their fork like they were going to stab something. And suddenly I'm teaching them to hold it like it, uh, they're holding a pencil but with their thumb up. Well, that, they've got to break the old habit. And that old habit is so comfortable because they just want to get this food done and then run outside. You know, so um, I... I I get this all the time that I have to retrain them, but I hope eventually they will just because people will notice they're holding it, you know, 
like they're stabbing something. <laughs> so table manners are important. People, um, light really shines on you when you're eating in a group. People are talking to you, and, they're, and they notice. They notice if you talk with your mouth full. They, they notice if you spill things. They, they, they do notice. Uh, I go to lunch every Thursday with a Kiwanis group, and um, I try, you know, I don't. I, I want to sit there and enjoy myself. But I notice that they're noticing people around them uh, when something spills, they drop their food or whatever, or how they hold their utensils. So people do notice table manners especially. Because when I ask kids, tell me uh, what you noticed in table manners, well, they have horror stories (laughs) to tell me. And they love to dwell on the bad table manners. Right, right. So I have to... You know, pull them away from that. Say, let's talk about good table manners. What are they? And first of all, they say, put the napkin on your lap. They all know to do that. Well, Barbara, tell us how to get your book. Uh, Author House has the book. Um, I have a, an eBay account, The Etiquette Lady. Uh, uh, we, can, we can get it through Barnes & Noble or Borders. Uh, you just, they don't, they're not stocked in Barnes & Noble or Borders, and, and they can order from Author House, too. Uh, but I'm hoping someday they will be stocked, you know, at the store so people can just go out and get it that day. Well, we appreciate you sharing this charming children's book. Thank you so and much, Steve. You certainly uh, has, could be described as the etiquette guru. <laughs> yes, that's what they say. That's what they say. That's what they say. Well, it's been great to... Uh, meet you and best to you and i hope your series takes off and it's certainly needed and i'm sure enjoyed by parents and children alike so thank you that was author barbara hickey and her book miss sincerely kind goes out and about where good manners matter